Hello, my name is Giovanni and this is Social Medicine, my weekly therapy session wherein we delve deep into the issues that are on my mind. We have made it to the first season finale of this new rebooted show. There were some hiccups along the way, but I could not be happier with how every full episode released uh, turned out. For those of you who were looking for me to talk about less controversial or serious topics and wanted episodes like the ones I did on aliens or foreign films, I'm sorry to say that you will probably not enjoy this episode. But like I said in the introduction episode, uh, my feelings and emotions will dictate what I discuss and how I discuss it. Obviously, we are living through some crazy times, uh, rising tensions between Iran and the U.S. over the killing of Qasem Soleimani, uh, Australia's bushfires, Trump's impeachment trial, uh, a politicized global pandemic, widespread protests over the unjust killings of individuals at the hands of the police, ongoing human rights protests in Hong Kong, and much more has happened in this very long first half of the year. So why wouldn't my mind be on those huge current events? But I do agree with those of you wanting more fun episodes. The coverage of topics such as the coronavirus, police brutality, and social media has taken an emotional toll on me, but I wouldn't cover something if I didn't want to, if I, if I didn't want to, or, you know, I didn't deem it important. With that being said, I want next season to be more fun to listen to. So while I refuse to back off uh, more serious topics completely, I will definitely try to better balance the offerings. Uh, but for now, let me focus on finishing up this season. So for the season finale, I wanted to practice being a social studies teacher uh, by going over a number of historical events or concepts that have been relevant uh, to discussions held in recent years, but more pertinently in 2020. It's an election year, probably the most important election year in recent history. So tensions are high, not to mention all the ugliness we've been living through these past six months. This will serve as a mutually beneficial historical dive on political issues in 2020, which mainly deal with race relations and voter suppression. We have a lot to cover, so let's get started. I wanted to highlight some of the terms and events that have been brought up recently that I think most Americans were simply never taught or at least not taught enough in comparison to stuff like the American Revolution or World War II. I know the American education system seems to favor violent conflicts at the that portray America in a positive light. Um, this first one is Juneteenth, which received an unprecedented amount of attention due to the protest and discourse surrounding its anniversary on June 19th. And because of what could easily be construed as a political statement by the Trump administration to host a political rally on June 19th at Tulsa, Oklahoma, the location of the Tulsa Race Massacre, which we'll get to here in a bit. So what even is Juneteenth? I'm sure most, if not all of you, have taken the extra step to become more aware of this holiday, or were forced to, either way. Uh, I would still like to talk about it, and maybe you'll get something more out of it. What is Juneteenth? Juneteenth is the oldest known celebration commemorating the ending of slavery in the United States. President Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing enslaved Africans in the United States in 1862, and the 13th Amendment passed Congress, officially abolishing the institution of slavery in 1863. But it would take years for word to spread. On June 19, 1865, Union soldiers led by Major General Gordon Granger landed at Galveston, Texas, with the news that the Civil War was over and the roughly 250,000 enslaved people there were now free. 
Arguments continue to this day over the existence of systemic bias in our government and institutions, with those arguing against the idea citing historical victories for blacks in America, such as the 13th Amendment, as their evidence. But these people choose to leave it at that, and it is oftentimes the people telling others to learn their history that are in greater need of being educated. The Emancipation Proclamation freed slaves from Confederate states, and the 13th Amendment abolished slavery or involuntary servitude, quote, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. Juneteenth was the day that the last slaves in Texas were freed, but as the 13th Amendment states, legal slavery would take the form of imprisonment. The conservative argument is that milestones such as these are evidence enough for the equal rights and freedoms of black and white Americans, and for the dismantling of the argument for systemic racism's existence, showing a complete lack of any critical thinking skills. It's a very conveniently childlike view of morality, of good and evil in America. Racism can exist, because it is illegal. It's the just world fallacy at play. Good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. George Floyd has a criminal record, therefore he deserved to be killed by the police. It's a deeply problematic and hypocritical view of justice as people touting this nonsense are, are typically those who claim to believe in the notion of innocent until proven guilty, which is conveniently only ever brought up by these people when people that look like them are accused of something like sexual or physical assault, even when there is clear evidence of their wrongdoing. I may be getting off on a tangent, but I wanted to relate the history of June with what is going on now and the arguments around it. It is clear that arguments like these are made in a place of comfort. I can empathize that it is hard for someone who has never been on the receiving end of racism to have a clear understanding of what it is and what it looks like. But it is 2020 and information is at the tip of your fingertips if you care enough to look for it. And that's the problem. People don't care. I talked in my last episode about intolerance and people like that are just as intolerant of new ideas and information as we are of their lack of understanding or empathy. I decided to start with talking about Juneteenth because as a Civil War reenactor says in the clip I'm about to play for you, um, it was the start of America's journey to becoming the great nation it still refuses to be. Juneteenth celebration organizers back in Galveston where it all began remembering those infamous four words. All slaves are free. With that phrase, the United States changed and changed in a way that I think is nothing but good. Do we have a lot more to do? Oh yeah. Are, are we where we're supposed to be? Not yet. But that was the day when we started to be who we really could be. That last thing I said about America refusing to be the great nation it is touted as being by our nation's racist and pedophilic elites might be seen by some of you as a controversial thing to say. I don't think it should be. It is undoubtedly true that progress has continued to occur in the nation, but we can't make the mistake that I said conservatives make earlier by claiming that this progress is enough when it clearly isn't. I'm very grateful for having been born in this country, just as I'm sure people from other developed nations are grateful for having been born there. But a lot of what I'm grateful for in regards to living in America is perpetually being attacked and deemed un-American by a small but very vocal minority. Things like America's progressive democratic values of equality and free speech, its diversity and multiculturalism, and the religious freedom to worship anyone in anything we want are all constantly attacked by those claiming to be patriots and claiming to love America. And this isn't me ironically saying that they can't complain. What do you think it is I'm doing right now? Complaining is an American value. It's how things get done, or at least that's where the perception of things being done comes from. These people are always free to bitch about things that make America good in my eyes, bad in theirs, just as I am free to bitch about them. Now, as a humanist, I would never call myself a patriot or a nationalist. I'm simply a human being who happened to be born in this large plot of land we call America. But I do have my own subjective idea of what it means to be American or what American values we should uphold, as do 
those on the right. As much as I want these people to convert to more empathetic individuals capable of treating and seeing everyone as equals, regardless of race, religion, ethnicity, sexual orientation, or what have you, I understand that people like this will always exist. I would at the very least want these people to stop kidding themselves when they claim to love America, when it is obvious that they love America as much as they care about black people. That is not very much. And I think that it, this is important for them to realize that it is okay to see some wrong with America, and that talking about your problems with it, with those you dip typically disagree with, is how change occurs. It may not be the change they were hoping for, but it's the change that America needs. But our politicians thrive on pitting us against them, of pitting two seemingly antithetical viewpoints against each other, in order to divert from the issues that are being promoted by those in positions of power. And I want to clarify that I do not intend to draw a false equivalency between some of the most intolerant views of those on the right to people on the left struggle for equality. I am simply stating that America is not perfect for either group, and that the increased division of Americans only serves to ensure that those benefiting from it continue to do so. One of the clearest examples of racial division and violence as a means for the reversal of social progress is what occurred almost 100 years ago in Tulsa, Oklahoma. In 1921, a neighborhood in Tulsa, Oklahoma called the Greenwood District was a bustling community of Black-owned businesses. Tulsa locals know that period of Greenwood's history as a kind of golden age. If you can imagine just a, um, like an old-time downtown, things like um, movie theaters, pharmacies, hair salons, and so forth. They called it Black Wall Street. It was a mecca. It was a huge success. But Black Wall Street was also an anomaly. It thrived at a time when the KKK was incredibly active in Oklahoma, and the nation had just been through the Red Summer of 1919, when white mobs murdered black people in dozens of incidents across the U.S. There needed to be a sort of match or an igniter tossed on these embers. And that event was, that trigger event, was an incident that involved two teenagers. Dick Rowland, 19-year-old black boy who shined shoes downtown. Sarah Page, 17-year-old white girl who ran an elevator in a downtown building called the Drexel Building. He went to the building, boarded the elevator. Something happened and Sarah Page began to scream. They both ran out of the elevator. Now, we don't know exactly what happened in this elevator. But a day later, Rowland was arrested and taken to the courthouse. The local newspaper ran an article claiming Roland had assaulted Page. Even though Page refused to press charges, the article was essentially a call to action for whites. A large white mob began to gather on the lawn of the courthouse. Dick Roland was in jail on the top floor. A number of black men, several dozen, marched down to the courthouse to protect him, some of them armed. There was a struggle between one of the black men in the small group and one of the white men in the larger group, and things sort of went south from, from that point. Hundreds of white people descended upon Black Wall Street, armed. Black residents withdrew behind the railroad tracks that marked off the Greenwood District. Some of them were armed and fought back, but they were outnumbered by the white mob, which shot their way through. The white mob murdered. They looted, and they set fire to Black Wall Street. This was the strategy, if you will, of how to deal with these communities, with these successful black communities. The effects were uh, disastrous. For two days, the Greenwood District burned, martial law was declared, and the National Guard was brought in. 
By the time the massacre ended, Greenwood was in ruins. More than 1,200 homes were destroyed and 35 blocks burned. The exact number of casualties is harder to pin down. Some initially only reported that white people died. Others reported somewhere between 30 and 100 mostly black casualties, but estimates now put that number closer to 300. As for those that survived, thousands of them lived in tent cities in the months that followed and were left to pick up the pieces of rubble they once called home. I'm sure that before the protests taking place in America currently uh, pushed us to better educate ourselves over black American history, most Americans had never heard of the Tulsa Race Massacre. And it saddens me to say that as someone who's lived in Oklahoma most of their life and went through the Oklahoma City public school system, it took my sophomore year of college for me to truly learn about this event in detail. There's a disturbing remembrance of the explicit racism found in our government not too long ago and serves as a warning for African Americans looking to find happiness through success that no matter how much wealth they accrue, they will still be seen as lesser by the worst of our society. I'm going to be reading a section from the Tulsa Historical Society and Museum's uh, Tulsa Race Massacre online exhibit, which contains information originally included in the 2001 Race Riot Commission report. It reads... Black Tolsons had every reason to believe that Dick Rowland would be lynched after his arrest. His charges were later dismissed and highly suspect from the start. They had cause to believe that his personal safety, like the defense of themselves and their community, depended on them alone. As hostile groups gathered and their confrontation worsened, municipal and county authorities failed to take actions to calm or contain the situation. At the eruption of violence, civil officials selected many men, all of them white, and some of them participants in that violence, and made those men their agents as deputies. In that capacity, deputies did not stem the violence but added to it, often through overt acts that were themselves illegal. Public officials provided firearms and ammunition to individuals, again, all of them white. Units of the Oklahoma National Guard participated in the mass arrests, all or nearly all of Greenwood's residents. They removed them to other parts of the city and detained them in holding centers. Entering the Greenwood district, people stole, damaged, or destroyed personal property, left behind in homes and businesses. People, some of them agents of government, also deliberately burned or otherwise destroyed homes credibly estimated to have numbered 1,256 along with virtually every other structure, including churches, schools, businesses, even a hospital and a library in the Greenwood District. Despite duties to preserve order and to protect property, no government at any level offered adequate resistance, if any at all, to what amounted to the destruction of the Greenwood neighborhood. Although the exact total can never be determined, credible evidence makes it probable that many people, likely numbering between 100 and 300 were killed during the massacre. Not one of these criminal acts was then or ever has been prosecuted or punished by government at any level, municipal, county, state, or federal. Even after, after the restoration of order, it was official policy to release a black detainee only upon the application of a white person, and then only if that white person agreed to accept responsibility for that detainee's subsequent behavior. As private citizens, many whites in Tulsa and neighboring communities did extend invaluable assistance to the massacre's victims, and the relief efforts of the American Red Cross, in particular, provided a model of human behavior at its best. Although city and county government bore much of the cost for Red Cross relief, neither contributed substantially to Greenwood's rebuilding. In fact, municipal authorities acted initially to impede rebuilding. Despite being numerically at a disadvantage, black Tolsons fought valiantly to protect their homes, their businesses, and their community. But in the end, the city's African-American population was simply outnumbered by the white invaders. In the end, the restoration of Greenwood after its systematic destruction was left to the victims of that destruction. 
While Tulsa officials turned away some offers of outside aid, a number of individual white Tulsans provided assistance to the city's now virtually homeless black population. But it was the American Red Cross, which remained in Tulsa for months uh, following the massacre, that provided the most sustained relief effort. Effort. I think to see people damn near equating this to some of the protests that rose up in response to cases of police brutality recently. But again, that is the effect of pol politicians politicking. And you can see this effect through some of the shared rhetoric between what are affectionately referred to as Karens and other types of counter-protesters. There is a common stream of talking points coming out of their mouths uh, in relation to all lives matter, the fake news media, the radical left, anecdotal evidence against the case of racism, and of course the sanctity of Confederate monuments being torn down. Listen to how this textbook describes slavery. The master often had a barbecue or a picnic for his slaves. Then they had a great frolic. Even while working in the cotton fields, they sang songs. The beat of the music and the richness of their voices made work seem light. Yikes, that's from History of Georgia, a textbook published in 1954 that was taught across junior high schools in Georgia for decades. That sort of language is part of an intellectual movement called the Lost Cause, a distorted version of American Civil War history that's been prevalent in the South for a long time. It took shape soon after the defeat of the Confederate States in the war, when Southern historians like Edward Pollard and former Confederate General Jubal Early started preserving the South's perspective through their writings. They framed the Confederate cause as a heroic defense of the Southern way of life against the overwhelming forces in the North. That narrative has a few basic tenets. The glorification of Confederate soldiers who died for a cause they believed in, the belief that slavery was a benevolent institution, and maybe most importantly, that slavery was not the root cause of the war. The Lost Cause is one of the most notoriously effective efforts to rewrite history, and it was done by the losing side. So how did it become so deeply rooted in Southern memory? Revisionist history is a powerful propaganda tool commonly weaponized by fascist regimes in the preparation of violent retaliation against a minority group largely demonized and dehumanized by said propaganda. In this case, the myth of the lost cause remains intact as a part of Southern history to those who believe that the Civil War was fought over states' rights or that Confederate soldiers fought to maintain their Southern way of life, in both cases conveniently leaving out the institution of slavery that America was benefiting from. But the Confederate debate rages on over the flag and over the monuments of Confederate generals with people clinging on to clinging on to the notion that Southern heritage must be celebrated, and that taking down flags and monuments celebrating racism and slavery would be to rewrite history. It is typically uneducated people who make these arguments. They have to be, because if they were educated, they would see the irony in their claims of revisionist history being pushed by the radical left. And if they were educated, they would understand that there is a difference between celebrating history and teaching it. That's like saying we can't teach about Hitler and Nazis because they were bad. We must teach these things in order to learn from them, but you can't learn from history without first leaving it in the past. Refusing to accept society's current moral standards is to live a life full of hate. It is to use your idiotic, ill-conceived notions of racial superiority in order to advance er, to attack and slow down progress towards becoming a healthier society. It, both directly and indirectly, affects the lives of others. And when it comes to people who selfishly and purposely endanger the well-being of others, well, let's just say I'm not a huge fan of those people. Now, when it comes to debates currently raging and that have been raging for decades regarding the Confederacy and what symbology honoring it represents, people on both sides point the finger at the other and claim that they are revising history, lying about what really went down, about what the Civil War was fought over. Here are some people from Charleston, South Carolina, answering the question, should the Confederate flag still fly, following backlash over its display in public government buildings after the horrific mass shooting enacted by a disgusting and racist individual who took the lives of nine African-American churchgoers at the Emanuel African Methodist Ep Episcopal Church five years ago. 
it's symbolic of what Charleston is hanging on to. I think it shouldn't really be hanging any, anywhere. It's just remembrance of a time, a period in history. It has nothing to do with racism or hatred. It's just undying remembrance. If it's upsetting to so many people, then maybe it's time to take it down. I don't think it's a racist symbol. I don't think it's a symbol we need to use. It's, it's our past. And, you know, it's not, I don't think it's a good symbol of our past, but it is our past. I believe it just encourages division and separation. When I see it, I think that, you know, a lot of times some people are uneducated and really don't understand a lot about what it means to be a community, what it means to be a people. I think it's still out there because you have individuals out there that basically don't want the public to think that they're racist, but they are. Although it may have been an ugly time in our history, it's still a part of our history. And good or bad, we need to honor that part as part of our heritage. I thank the, the Confederacy, the Civil War, because they educate ourselves as a nation to, to make ourselves better. It's important to note that in a lot of cases, it isn't simple ignorance from the part of those flying Confederate flags or defending Confederate monuments. They were victims of a planned and widespread indoctrination of Southern youth in the decades following the end of the war, particularly by the hands of the highly influential United Daughters of the Confederacy. Dr. Karen Cox wrote the book on the UDC, and I asked her if it was fair to say the group established the lost cause as historical fact in the South. Oh my God, yeah. They were the leaders of the lost cause into the 20th century, and they made it a movement about vindication. Just to give you an idea of how effective they were, they successfully lobbied for a Confederate memorial in Arlington National Cemetery, which U.S. President Woodrow Wilson proudly unveiled to a cheering crowd. Now that's influence, right? Monuments are the least of what they did. Uh, what? I mean, they, they are the most visible and tangible, but the work with children was far more influential. It turns out a central UDC objective is shaping how children think about the war and their Southern heritage. One of their most powerful tools, textbooks. Take a look at this pamphlet called A Measuring Rod for Textbooks. It was written by the illustrious Southern historian Miss Mildred Rutherford, an educator, orator, and author of Southern history textbooks. She's also very pro-slavery. The pamphlet announced the formation of a textbook review committee featuring prominent Southerners like five former Confederate generals. This group was committed to spreading the truths of Confederate history, so they instructed school boards to reject any textbooks that did not accord full justice to the South. And they urged libraries to deface every book in their collection that didn't measure up by writing the words unjust to the South clearly on its cover. This pamphlet was shared widely with school boards throughout the South, and UDC-backed committees closely monitored history books to make sure Northern influence never reached classrooms. So the core language of an approved textbook aligned precisely with that of the lost cause. You know, stuff like, The Confederacy lost in the war between the states, but Georgia never forgot to honor her Confederate soldiers. History of Georgia was on the UDC's approved list. It was also written by E. Merton Coulter, a self-described Southern historian and historian-described white supremacist. The deliberate indoctrination of the American youth is something that conspiratorial right-wing individuals claim is happening at the hands of leftist elites without realizing that, one, academia is very left-leaning for the simple notion that the GOP benefits from the pervasiveness of anti-intellectualism amongst its constituents, as well as the inclusionary aspect of academia regarding culture and religion being antithetical to the conservative way of life, and two, that they themselves were victims of the indoctrinatory practices of the decision-makers in the powerful institutions in their state and in the entire 
entire country. This debate will never go away or no, it's never going to go anywhere unless people become honest with themselves as to why they fly the Confederate flag or why their ancestors joined the fight. It is only then that honest and healthy discussion may take place and where compromise and understanding may urgent originate from. We need to come to terms with the fact that as a forward thinking, as forward thinking or as our predecessors were, they were also despicable and evil beings. The Confederate flag is a symbol of said evil, the representation of the darkness that America represented and still in some ways represents. Flying it is similar to flying a Nazi flag in Germany. You aren't honoring those who fought in the war when you fly that flag. You are honoring the what the Confederacy as a whole fought and stood for. And for those of you who still aren't convinced what the Confederacy fought for and the values for which it was formed and that are distrustful of secondary accounts of history, well here is your answer from as primary source a primary source can be. The Vice President of the Confederacy was a man named Alexander Hamilton Stevens. He, he's, he's the fellow up here that looks like a 12-year-old boy with some scars. Mr. Vice President, why? Why did you secede and write a new constitution and start a new country? Was, that, was, that all, was the constitution really necessary? Why? The new constitution has put to rest forever all the agitating questions relating to our peculiar institution, African slavery, as it exists amongst us, the proper status of the Negro in our form of civilization. This was the immediate cause of the late rupture and present revolution. You can't really make it more explicit than that, can you? Vice President Stevens, can you make it any more explicit? You can't. Our new government is founded upon, its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. Now this is not me giving you a historian's interpretation. I have literally showed you the historical evidence. But millions of Americans still idolize Confederate leaders, Confederate monuments, and, and yes, Confederate flags. And they rationalize it by claiming that the Confederate cause was something other than the protection of slavery. But you and I, we have just looked directly at the evidence created during the time. So we know, as my mentor Bill Shea would say, that is wrong, incorrect, and just plain not right. So yeah, your, your great-great-grandfather who didn't own any slaves but he fought for the Confederacy, this is the cause that he was fighting for. And he knew it, and he was fine with it. We owe it to ourselves to educate ourselves and one another, no matter how ugly our history may be, which all human history is. I do agree with the importance of learning about historical events, such as the Civil War, from multiple perspectives. I believe that that is the only way history should be taught. Teaching a singular perspective is to purposely teach an incomplete history. By doing this, teaching multiple perspectives, that is, uh, we are better equipped to presently, uh, presently combat the bigotry and prejudice so very present in our history. What I don't agree with is the notion that Confederate statues or flags teach us this history. Because it is very clear that everyone who got their history from the Confederate perspective got it very, very wrong. It is this aforementioned anti-intellectualism so very present in the GOP's electorate that is promoting and weaponizing willful ignorance. Hate disguises anything else as still hate, and hate disguises ignorance as merely a scapegoat. It's up to us adults to grow the fuck up, read and inform ourselves, and challenge the ideas taught to us as children. It's ironic that the people celebrating individual rights and freedoms and are against a big federal government 
government are the ones who are in greater need of said government to get their life on track. As I mentioned earlier, this is an important election year, and I am lucky enough to be able to make my voice heard through the democratic process. I know that a lot of people, both on the left and the right, have become disillusioned with our democracy, and they have great reason to. But choosing to simply not vote is a much more dangerous position to hold. I'll be going over some of the legal hurdles that have historically and or currently stand in the way of a portion of our population from voting, a political tactic particularly employed by the Republican Party in favor or in order to prevent historically Democratic voters from being able to vote. The clearest example being the disenfranchisement of black voters in southern states during the Reconstruction era during the through the implementation of literacy tests and poll taxes. But this isn't a thing of the past. This is happening now. With the enactment of uh, voter ID laws being used to prevent mostly minority groups and younger individuals from voting, which was allowed to happen after the Supreme Court in 2013 ruled Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act, which required certain states and localities with a history of discrimination against minority voters to get changes cleared by the federal government before they went into effect as unconstitutional. After this, states were essentially free to enact restrictive voting laws such as the one introduced in Kentucky earlier this year, which would require that voters carry an ID with both a photo and an expiration date. This is an obvious attack against the voting rights of those without eligible ID, which are disproportionately low-income, racial, and ethnic minorities, the elderly, and people with disabilities. These individuals are typically incapable of obtaining an ID because of the lack of resources. It costs money and time that some people simply do not have. Lower-income individuals are obviously less likely of owning a car, especially if they lack a, a driver's license in the first place. So traveling to wherever they need to to obtain an ID is not an option. And they obviously would have to take time off work in order to do so, which they can't. And in the case of the expiration date requirements, college-issued student IDs typically do not have an expiration date, which points to a clear targeting of younger voters, which typically vote Democrat. Voter ID laws are nothing new, but they do seem to be getting more and more restrictive, serving as a new form of poll taxes for lower-income Americans. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, Widespread voter purges between 2014 and 2016 have led to the removal of almost 16 million U.S. voters from the rolls. That's almost 4 million more names purged from the rolls than were purged between 2006 and 2008. So what accounts for the increase? For the first explanation, we have to go back to 2009. Back then, Democrats fully controlled 27 state legislatures. But if you look at the map of party control right before the 2018 midterms, you can see it's a lot more red. When Republicans took control of these states, they passed new laws making it harder to vote. All in the name of voter fraud. Voter fraud. allegations of voter fraud, claims of widespread voter fraud. But here's the thing. Research shows the paranoia far outweighs the amount of voter fraud that actually happens. Multiple investigations have found no evidence of widespread voter fraud. One study that looked at voter impersonation nationwide between 2000 and 2014 found just 35 total credible accusations of fraud. That's out of more than 800 million ballots cast in general elections alone. So if that's the case, why does the myth of widespread voter fraud live on? In part, because the myth fuels policies like purges. The purges disenfranchise minority voters who tend to move more often and are more likely to have common last names that can trigger false duplicates. These voters tend to lean Democratic, so by suppressing their votes, it can become an electoral strategy. 
no substantial evidence that large-scale voter fraud has occurred in recent elections, as our president would like to make us believe. He blames voter fraud for the reason that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote in 2016 and touts his disdain towards it as his motivating factor for wanting to get rid of absentee voting. Trump is not a very smart man, that much is obvious, but I think that his lack of intellect is a great reason for the immense support he receives from older Midwestern conservatives. That and the racist rhetoric he continues to spew. He is the epitome of anti-intellectualism in America, often going against the science, which as we've seen is particularly dangerous during a global pandemic, and pushing his opinions as fact, the mark of a true egotist. But it's painfully obvious that the main reason why he and other Republicans are vehemently opposed uh, or against vote absentee voting isn't fucking voter fraud, of which he himself is guilty of after registering to vote in Florida with an out-of-state address at the White House. This is obviously a mistake on his part, but it's just funny that someone who claims that millions committed, committed voter fraud in 2016 did just that, albeit accidentally and with no malicious intent. But like I was saying, voter fraud isn't the reason why he's campaigning against absentee ballots. It's because of this pandemic. More people than ever are going to be voting through absentee ballots in an effort to limit outside contact with others. This again is one of countless attempts of voter suppression and whether it succeeds like the others before it or not is yet to be seen. There is also the issue with felon voting rights. In most states, being convicted of a felony virtually automatically strips you of your voting rights. Listen, I know what you may be thinking. Those people probably killed or raped someone and they don't deserve the right to vote. Well, I disagree. As much as I think that our moral status as humans is fluid, I don't think that the same, I don't think the same when it comes to our legal status as citizens. Doing so would create a slippery slope regarding issues of immigration and set a dangerous precedent for racial discrimination. The truth of the matter is that not all convicted felons actually committed the crime they were convicted for. And not all felonies are created equal, mind you. Possession of marijuana is still a felony in some states. It doesn't matter what someone did. We can't let our morality cloud our judgment of someone's democratic right to vote. So yeah, there are many problems with our democracy, particularly when it comes to voting. But that is precisely why those of us who can should vote. I'm not a particular fan of either pedophile that will be on the ballot for this presidential election, but whether we like it or not, the choice is between them two, not Joe, not Kanye. Voting for either would either of them would only take votes from the challenger, ensuring another four years with our current commander-in-chief. I have my own ideas on how to make America a more democratic country, some radical, some simply common sense, but for now, I will keep them to myself. The big takeaways are that if you are capable of voting but don't, you have no right to complain about anything regarding American politics and, le and legislation, and that our democratic system is inherently fucked and favors a particular, particular group of Americans, and not to mention that the fact that you aren't automatically registered to vote once you turn 18, which is absolutely ridiculous. I had originally planned to include a section covering the elections and the history of sketchiness in our votes, such as alleged uh, Russian interference in recent elections and the 2000 election between Al Gore and George W. Bush being essentially decided by the Supreme Court through uh, the court case uh, Bush v. Gore, but I think I'll just be repeating myself and going over the same points. We live in a broken democracy, broken by the very people elected to represent our best interests. I originally wanted to explore this idea further by talking about the systems that account for this brokenness such as the electoral college, gerrymandering, and the political parties, but this episode is long as it is, so I will instead recommend you watch a video by Vox titled The Roots of America's Democracy Problem. Anyway, although it may seem like a self-defeating cycle to go out to vote, we need to be the voice of the voiceless and enact change just as recent protests have shown us. America is as beautiful a country as it is ugly, and it is up to us to participate in our democracy to rid it of its ugliness. This may take different forms for different people. Some may vote, some may protest, some may lobby, but we all have to do something. Either one of those activities is part of the democratic process. Because bitching about the broken system is no 
way to fix the system. Bitching about things should be step one of a multi-step process to enact the change we want to enact. We live in a red state, and I understand that most of my listeners don't like that. Well, I suggest you spread the word. Get your friends and family to vote, because change only happens when we are on the same page. Now, this begs the question, do I actually believe this? Everything I said. I don't think that's a fair question to ask. Our society is a complex one, which is reflected in the complexity of our thoughts and ideas. We're constantly proven right and wrong, so it's hard for me to know what I believe in. I know what I want. I know that I want what I said about the importance of political participation to be true, but I am not sure I believe it 100%. That depends on whether or not people heed my warning. I do believe in a true democracy, but how we get to that point is where it gets tricky for me. I just mostly wanted to shit-talk those I thought were deserving, especially after after everything we have seen recently. And I wanted to convince my peers to go out to vote because I know you can. Martin Luther King Jr. once said that the white moderate is a bigger obstacle for black Americans fight for freedom and justice than the Ku Klux Klan. Well, I would extend that and say that he who is apolitical is a bigger obstacle to achieving a true and just democracy than regressive bigots. Those who are apolitical outnumber those who are racist. That I am convinced of. And the, f- the f- defeat of systemic bigotry and the violation of Americans' rights hangs on the political participation of those who claim to be allies but who don't trust in the process. When it comes to the process, your trust is worthless. It is your participation that is worth anything. The expected result shouldn't be immediate reform, no matter how much we want that, but the gradual reversal of bigotry present in our institution. Again, do I believe this? I don't know, but I do know that you are at least doing something when you go out to vote, when you go to protest, when you sign a petition. Sitting at home and sharing your opinions regarding Black Lives Matter on social media doesn't mean shit unless you get off your ass and act. Posting a black square on Instagram is the equivalent of being a white moderate to continue using MLK's rhetoric. All talk, no show. Voting, informing yourself and others, protesting, signing petitions, calling and emailing legislators. That's how we, that's how the best parts of America were formed. And trust me, I know it can get frustrating to see how slow progress has been made and I wish that wasn't the case too. I want to see these injustices end as much as all of you. But the reality is that we are fighting an uphill battle. Bringing up progressive change will always be harder than conserving traditional values. That's all I have to say. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show and appreciate the time and effort I put into researching, writing, recording, and editing it, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash social medicine. There's only one tier of a dollar a month. That's for anyone who enjoys the show and wants to help build it. I want to sincerely thank everyone who supported me as I tried something new this season, whether it was financially by sharing my posts or just listening. It means a lot that people care to listen to what I have to say and sit through me rambling to get my opinions across. This is still something I have a hard time with and I feel that this episode was especially guilty of that. I just want to summarize real quick and say that multiple say multiple points. Um uh, using progressive change uh, using progressive changes in history and legislation as evidence for there being no slavery or I'm sorry no racism in our institutions is idiotic and completely ignores the personal experiences of individuals notice it's mostly straight white men arguing against America's systemic bias and flies against the research that overwhelming, overwhelmingly supports the existence of systemic bias in our institutions arguments defending the confederate cause during the American Civil War and the representation of confederate symbology is nothing short of anti-intellectual ignorance caused by the indoctrination of southern youth that continues to take place today and the revisionist history used to back up these arguments is nothing short of historical denialism founded on a long-standing ignorance subconsciously or consciously promoting implicit racism voter suppression is a real blow against
democracy in more ways than originally imagined as a mere existence and knowledge of its existence ensures that voters become disillusioned, disillusioned with the process and in turn have a low political efficacy. I wanted to get my point across over a bunch of topics at once so I hope that they come across and I hope I was able to defend my positions and opinions at least somewhat successfully. I never intend to be a master debater but I do want to be better at to, I do want to get better at expressing myself and I think social medicine is helping a lot with that. This is the end of social medicine's first season. I will be back in a few weeks with a bigger and better second season. As always I encourage you to reach out to me and give me both positive and negative feedback to know what I should keep doing and what I need to change. I can't thank you all enough for the support. This show is keeping me sane and, and I hope it does the same for you. So, But if it doesn't, just you know, find other ways to please stay safe and stay sane. The world needs you. Goodbye.